Hello and welcome to this, the 59th episode of Superhero Ethics. My name is Matthew, I'm one of your hosts. Hello, I'm Jacob, I'm also one of your hosts. And today we've got um, a podcast that I think we're pretty excited to talk about, but I think it's important we start, uh, we're going to be talking about Luke Cage and diving into some great things about that. Um, but I also want to name that this is kind of a sad day. Um, we're recording this today on November 12th, um, which is, as uh, probably most of you know, um, uh, the day that Stan Lee passed away. Stan Lee, the um, uh, founder of Marvel Comics and man who was you know, really essential to um, really the creation of so many of the stories that we talk about um, and that are such a big part of what we do um, here on the Superior Ethics Podcast. So um, I wanted to start just by taking a moment to kind of remember him and remember the great things he did. Um, Jacob, for you, what a, what is uh, Stan Lee's uh, legacy? Like, why do, why do you think he's important to kind of the stuff we're, we're talking about today? Well, one of the big things that Stan Lee was involved with uh, was actually helping change the, the standards of the Comics Code Authority. Uh, this is yeah. something I actually just found out about today. So I'd love to say that like I knew this ahead of time and I was super <laughs> into comics. But really, it was there's a lot of things, um, a lot of uh, standards that were put into here that they had to adhere to. And it was sort of their way, the Comics Code Authority was the way for comics to sort of not not be regulated by the government, but rather be, be regulated by something else within the industry. Um, and there's some item, like a lot of the items in there still make sense and are still adhered to, to this day. But, um, but, uh, Stanley did a lot of stuff that, uh, was criticized for defying the code. And then, uh, as things went on, helped to, to sort of get things changed to become a little bit more modern. He's also, of course, heavily involved in uh, co-creating characters like the X-Men, who we yep. talk about at length on this show as, as good examples of uh, heroes that are really, like, the, the X-Men are very much uh, social commentary on, on our society as a whole, right, and how he would treat uh, superhuman people, and it's uh, the X Men was actually like the my first real introduction to um, superheroes outside of the Christopher Reeve Superman yeah. movies, and it was just seeing that seeing a world where these powered individuals who want to do good are being fought against by the very people they're they're trying to help was a you know th that was a completely different world for me. Yeah, I, I think that really sums it up well. I, I should say also to um. Uh, cut off those people who are already halfway through angry emails. Uh, I was I, I misspoke a second ago. Stanley was not necessarily the founder of Marvel Comics, but he was the editor in chief and the the publisher, and was uh, really responsible for creating a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we know today. Um, so that's, that's a better way of saying it. Um, and I think yeah, you 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 really um, captured it, uh, uh, Jacob. Stanley, you know, he was what we talk about all the time is this idea that that characters in not that comic books are the um, quintessential or the only way to get superheroes, but they certainly have defined the format, uh, the genre, quite a bit. And Stan Lee really was pushing this idea that comic books didn't just have to be for kids. They could be social commentary. And and I'm, I'm by no means an expert on the history of comics, but my understanding is, as we've talked about before, you know, originally Superman kind of started in the same way. He was kind of social commentary. Captain America was a little bit social commentary about the Nazis and all that. But then, at, at, at you know, in the in the fifties and the forties and the fifties, comics became much more about being wholesome and American, and that that board of comic book standards that you were just talking about, and and became kind of something that was looked down on and thought of as just they were fun stories for kids. 
Um, and Stan Lee really helped to change that. He really helped to bring that back um, and, and really helped to give give birth to the, the comic book world that we know today. And that raises so many of the ethical questions that we, that we raise today. So um, I think it's just really important, especially on a podcast like this, that that owes so much to his memory, um, owes so much to the work he did that we just take a moment to to remember him, to memorialize him and to um, uh, uh, be grateful for the incredible work he did. And so with that, let's kind of uh, shift into what our main topic for today is going to be, which is Luke, Luke Cage Season 2. Um, and because, you know, Jacob, you and I have both now seen the show and we had a lot of thoughts on it. And I want to jump into that, but I want to start with one other kind of disclaimer thought, which is um, obviously Luke Cage with Season 1 and 2, um, they're about a number of issues. But one of the most important issues that they're really tackling is race and all of the issues that come up around being a black person, a black man in America, and where that falls, especially in terms of issues of violence and of police violence and of racism and um, and, and just all the things that comes up. We didn't do an episode on Luke Cage, um, and that was intentional because I looked at that show and I loved that show, and we certainly commented on that show. But more than anything, I came away thinking, this show is not one that needs two white guys talking about it um, because they're just so much of what it was about in terms of race and the like were things that, frankly, I didn't feel. And I think Paul, uh, who's the co-host at the time, neither one of us felt like we were you know, qualified to have that conversation. And, and, and so certainly as we start this, this, this episode, I, I think that there's a, a we, we've intentionally looked at our outline and said there's a lot of issues beyond just the questions of race that we're going to be talking about Um and that we're to some extent going to leave the issues of, of racism and, and, and things like that that Luke Cage brings up. Um, we're, we're not really going to dive into those too much because I think to do that without having a person of color on, on with just uh, my perspective and Jacob's, as, as woke as we like to think we are, I think would be disingenuous to the topic. So certainly I would say that there are a, a number of fantastic um, uh, podcasters and writers of color who have done a lot of great work on Luke Cage already and are continuing to do great work. And while I hope that um, you all, our listeners, enjoy what we have to say, I would also definitely say, please, um, when you finish this podcast, take a moment to check out some of those other writers, some of those other podcasters, um, because uh, while I think we'll have some interesting things to say, at the end of the day, uh, two white guys are not going to have a definitive word about Luke Cage. I mean, that that was a very very large number of words to say exactly that, but I feel like there was a (laughs) – it was also very eloquently put – and I I agree. I I would love look. I would love to be in a world where I can sit here and and pretend that um, I can talk about uh, the race issues that Luke Cage deals with with a level of clarity and a level of knowledge that uh, somebody who has experienced these things would also have. It's just not possible. My experience is so radically different, uh, and there's no. I I wouldn't feel right. I'd feel like I was uh, either just saying things based off of what I saw in media, which is a really bad thing to do. Fictional stories are fictional, right? They're not real. Uh, Or worse yet, uh, just sort of uh, assume from a position of ignorance, which usually gets somebody into a lot of trouble. So it's better. I think it's better that we don't. It's not like we're we're unwilling to, to talk about uh these topics i think they're very important topics uh in our society to this day uh but when we're talking about the analysis of luke cage and our our viewpoints on the the different ethical considerations that season two specifically brings uh we want to focus on things that we we feel we can speak with 
perhaps not authority, as we've said, neither of us are experts, uh, but at least we, we have some idea what we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's well put. And so with that, let's let's start to jump in. So just first of all, starting with general impressions, what was what was your take on Luke Cage season two? Uh, well, and I think you and I have had this conversation. I, I liked it. I liked it better than I liked season one. Um, now, part of that is because I liked the first half of season one, and I like I didn't dislike the second half, but I didn't like, Di- and I think we've talked about this before, I didn't like Diamondback as a, a major antagonist. I thought Mariah Dillard was a far more interesting antagonist. And hey, look, Luke Cage season two came along, and we're like, oh, yeah. you wanted Mariah Dillard to be to be an antagonist here you go uh and suddenly i was i was in yeah i i'm in the same way i thought luke cage season one is some of the best television i've ever seen but like a lot of netflix shows i I, you know it faltered in the second half it had a little bit of bloat it it did not have a great diamondback was just such a letdown after cotton mouth and while i didn't think that luke cage two ever hit the really high highs of luke cage season one Overall, I thought it was just a stronger show because it just it, it did not have that sort of like end of season bloat. Mariah and Bushmaster were both fantastic villains the whole way through. And and I really thought it just raised so many interesting questions uh, that we're going to get into, especially about what does it mean to be, you know, trying to be the hero in a difficult world um, in, in that I feel like if if the central story of season one is Luke reluctantly deciding to be a hero. The story of season two, I think, is him realizing maybe a hero isn't what Harlem needs. Um, and I'm, I'm forever haunted by that line from Mariah, uh, uh, Mariah Dillard towards the end of where she asks him, you know, does, does uh, Harlem need a hero or does it need a king? Um, and as we'll get into, I think that's what watching Luke explore that question was, I think, just such a fascinating part of this series. And it's, again, why I feel like season two is just uh, overall better because Luke Cage, where, where Luke Cage excelled uh, both times uh, as a story is when the conflict, the central conflict that Luke is wrestling with um, is not a, you know, his past, which is interesting, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that isn't interesting, but when he's dealing with the circumstances around himself, when his when his struggles are social in nature, right, and they're bigger than him and they're bigger than individual people, that's when it's interesting because we know he can't just solve that problem by going around and busting heads. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, you know, you and I have talked a number of times about the, the flaw of the superhero model in that it, it, because these shows always lead to great fight scenes, they sort of indicate the idea that you can fix problems by fighting. And I, one thing I really liked was seeing this season explore Luke's frustration and how at times that turned into anger and and not really healthy anger at the idea that he really can't just solve everything by being bulletproof and by being super strong. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so let's talk about some of the specifics. And I know one thing we, we we mentioned was that one of the other major themes in this show was revenge. Um, And there's a number of kind of intersecting plot lines where people are trying to get revenge on each other in this show. Um, what's what, what's your kind of take on on what this show has to say about about vengeance and revenge as as plot as um character motivators? Well, <laughs> apparently, what the show has to say about revenge is that uh, almost everybody who gets to a certain position of power wants it over somebody in some fashion or or like apparently, whenever you connect with uh somebody in a way. 
uh, I guess whenever you're hurt, uh, the desire to seek revenge just seems to be something that is, is universal and overwhelming. And we see it in a lot of the characters in the show, not just in Bushmaster, uh, wanting to go against every Stokes that is still breathing, uh, but in, in Tilda, right in, in Mariah's daughter, um, uh, Mariah, who actually, uh, a lot of her motivation, a lot of uh, what she was struggling with in season one even, was because she was sort of, um, she was still wrestling with what happened with, with her Uncle Pete, right? And so just this, this constant cycle, uh, so I feel like what the show is saying is like when, you're, when you enter this cycle of, of pain and hurt, uh, you end up with people wanting to seek revenge because that perpetuates the cycle uh yeah. which is sort of a it, it's good writing it's also pretty realistic mm-hmm. especially because when you talk about the cycle um to me like tilda with her mother like that is clearly it's about two people who had this relationship with each other um mariah dillard um her mother mabel was deeply involved in, you know, the murder of, of Bushmaster's parents and everything that happened to his family. But Mariah was just a young girl at the time that it happened. And to me, I always think one of the, one of the ways in which I, I think revenge storylines really cross a line, um, not that they become bad stories, but where it's, it's, it, it really now is about vengeance going much deeper is when now this is about, you know, your parents did something terrible to my parents. And so I have to do something terrible to you. Um, it's a Hatfields and McCoys kind of situation. Right, right. Because, I mean, A, that, that, that just becomes the cycle that, that continues on forever. But also, what does it mean that we're doing where we are literally, you know, um, holding the, the children accountable for the sins of the parents? Um, and I think that was a, in some ways, to me, it, it made me feel um, not necessarily sympathy from Raya, but really felt like she was such a tragic character in this show because so much of her story has been trying to prove that she is not Mabel, that she will not do the things Mabel did, that she will not be as bad as Mabel was, that she will be better in ways Mabel was not, and and that she recognizes that she is becoming more and more like Mabel and she hates it and she's fighting it. And then at the same time, here comes this other person who is blaming her for the things Mabel did. And mm-hmm. that him bla- him attacking her for the things Mabel did is making her fight back in ways that are making her like Mabel. I mean, that that's Greek tragedy level of, of, of cycle, you know, in a way that I just thought was such a powerful part of the story. Yeah, up to and including the more Bushmaster uh, aggresses against her, the more... Uh, the further down the pit she ends up going, right? Right. Uh, we enter this story, and Mariah is, and I would even argue laudably, trying to get out of the criminal life. She's trying to uh, go legitimate so that she can cut ties with the criminal organizations. And part of that is, you know, to be able to preserve her political career. But I do actually feel that there's genuinely a part of her that wants to just, now that she's established herself in this position of power actually use that power to do some good and she's denied it at every turn by this ghost from her past from her mother's past really um and it it's just sort of it's funny because for for mariah bushmaster ends up being like this physical manifestation of everything that mariah wants to not be that her mother was 
and right. he's sort of the ghost that she can't get rid of. Yeah, and, and so it becomes, therefore, I think, so ironic that probably the single most brutal you know, act of violence that happens in this season, um, the burning of Anazazi, um, which I, I'm sure I pronounced horribly wrong, is Anansi. not done. Anansi, right. thank you. Is not done by Bushmaster. It's done by Mariah. Um, and, and and to me, that's the moment where um, I, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's coincidental that you know Mabel's final act against um, the family in Jamaica is to burn their home mm-hmm. and to use, use fire to 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 kill them. And now. Mariah is using fire again against against that same family. Yep. Um, to me, that was very much. This is the moment where Mariah has really can no longer claim in any way that she's any better than Mabel. Yeah, and it's it's as you said, it's tragic in a way because I mean, and I'm not saying that uh, Mariah's behavior at that point is excusable in any way. That was the most horrific scene I have seen in any. Like, I think that one actually trumps the. Uh, decapitating somebody with a car door from kingpin because <laughs> you know at least that was a quick death um right. mariah wa- clearly wanted anansi to suffer because she was trying to send a message uh and that message was received but like well obviously she uh did not comprehend that she wasn't going to be able to to make somebody quit out of just being like nope that's too far now i'm now i'm yeah uh, I think that was like possibly her goal was to try to get rid of the conflict by doing something so monstrous that nobody would want to interact with her again. But in some ways, I think she's learning the same things that Luke is learning, though obviously she's learning it from a much more horrific uh, perspective. But it's that at the end of the day, no matter how brutal your violence is, that won't necessarily solve the problem. Yep, because really, the it's funny because actually the the more brutal you get. Um, the stronger that desire for revenge in the people you've wronged seems to become. Um, because that, it sort of confirms their righteousness, right? I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Bushmaster actually feels as though his cause for revenge is, in some ways, a just one. Right. Um, and it's only it's only uh, reinforced, that idea is reinforced by Mariah doing this this incredibly horrific thing. Um, to to Anansi, actually, like obviously going into the the restaurant and murdering a bunch of people, also not okay, right? It's just that particular moment that I think you're highlighting that really crosses the line from this is you know two people who are trying to two people who are fighting each other and who are uh, uh, both engaging in very violent ways, trying to to best the other, and turns it into something about no. Now I'm trying to just hurt you. Yeah, no, I definitely get that. And I I realized you watched it more recently than I did. I I rewatched the last three episodes um, just last night, but most of it I watched when it came out, which was a couple months ago. Because um, I think as much as he is fighting for revenge against her for things that her mother did, Mabel did. But I, I do remember that part of the issue was that the feeling that um, Bushmaster's family had, had had a real ownership claim to Harlem's paradise. Mm-hmm. And and I think, while to some extent this is obviously like the sins of Mabel being visited on Mariah, there is an extent to which he goes to Mariah to try to like work that out and she rejects him. I, 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 so, so there is at least to, to some extent which 
she she takes that on as much as it, it's not just her being unfairly blamed. Right. Uh, Bushmaster comes in uh, to talk with her at one point in Harlem's Paradise, but basically he wants basically he he wants to stake a claim to Harlem's Paradise, and she's right. not willing to entertain the notion. Um, yeah. that the Stokes and the, the that uh, Buggy Stokes and um, I'm trying to remember uh, the name of the, the Bushmaster character uh, that Buggy was in partnership with. Uh, they made apparently very delicious rum that I'd love to get my hands on because yes. you, you can make a clear rum that tastes as good as those people's expressions made me think it tasted. <laughs> I want some. Yeah, no, I definitely hear that. Um, well, let's just hit one other point of revenge, which is Tilda. Um, mm-hmm. What What was your take on Tilda's? Because um, she she kind of takes two very dis- distinctly different but really powerful acts of um, oh, revenge. I, I guess revenge against her mother, or certainly like trying to get even with her mother. Um, one of which is um, you know helping Bushmaster to 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 take her on, and then is at the end you know outright killing her mother. Um, what, mm-hmm. what, what What's your take on Tilda's storyline there? Well, she doesn't go to the point of outright killing her mother until after her mother chooses a very, uh, very tense, very fearful moment for all of them to reveal uh, Tilda's actual origin, right. um, and does it in a way where she's where where Mariah is clearly trying to tell Tilda that she doesn't love her at all, right? Right. Um, their relationship is obviously quite complicated, um, both because Mariah's sometimes not having the best grasp of, of reality and sanity. Uh, as, as this season goes on, she gets, uh, literally haunted by Mabel Stokes at one point, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I pretty sure that's, uh, in fiction supposed to be her envisioning mabel there not a literal actual ghost but this is marble so it could actually be a literal actual <laughs> ghost uh so i don't i don't know either way there um, anything goes yep but uh, so in that particular moment um she's clearly pushing tilda away very hard and this is after tilda has made a conscious effort to uh to try to reconnect with her mother to try to reconnect right. with mariah so I feel like I understand her motivation, uh, where she's just appalled at what what Mariah has become, and I think once, um, but but I think once it gets to the point of the the very end of the season, so I think helping Bushmaster is because she thinks Bushmaster has a point, right, and yeah. that her mother needs a check. Um, I think when we get to the point of Tilda uh, assassinating Mariah. Right through the through the poison in the lipstick. Right, that was how that scene went down. Yep. Yes. Um, I think that particular moment was less about Tilda deciding that she was going to exact, uh, yeah, exact her revenge on on her mother, and more about her fearing that her mother continuing to exist in this world was an evil that she couldn't permit. Right. right, I actually feel like there she just made a sort of more clinical decision uh, that it, uh, treating her mother as if her mother was some kind of of disease on Harlem. Um, that, at least that's how I took it from how the narrative was presented to me. I'm not saying I agree with Tilda's assessment in that situation, but I right. feel like once we got to that point, um, 
she was sort of not really emotionally invested in the outcome so much as as certain uh yeah. that it was right i i think it's interesting and i i think it bears noting and um and i i certainly did not know this when watching it but um th- there seems to be a lot of uh uh well in the comics tilda johnson is um a a supervillain known as nightshade or dr nightshade or deadly mm-hmm. nightshade um mm-hmm. and who among other things is you know kind of this expert chemist and who kills through things like you know poison lipstick and the like and i i think that scene was very much like going back and and knowing that i think that scene was very much supposed to establish this is the moment when she becomes nightshade this is the moment when she becomes you know the next villain or at least one of the next villains luke cage is going to have to deal with um that's if we get another season and that's another story um but and 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 so if that is the case we've talked before about how often supervillains or villains are ones who are kind of confused about their own motivations and can convince themselves that there's like a higher reason or that they're being like logical when really to some extent they're acting on their own emotion. And, and I think that's kind of what I saw here because I think you're right. I think Tilda believes that she is doing this because she has logically deduced that Mariah has to die and that Mariah is bad for Harlem and bad for the world and certainly there's all sorts of reasons to think that that's correct. I also don't think that just this lifetime of hurt and pain from Mariah, um, which has now become so crystallized, as you said, in that moment where Mariah is just incredibly cruel to her and says, you know, she could never love her because she reminds her of all these terrible things. I, I wonder to what extent this is Tilda just wanting her dead because of how, how much that hurt and how horrible that was. And then finding a way to justify it, because to me, that's if you want to kick someone off into becoming a a master criminal like Nightshade, that that's certainly one hell of an origin story. It's also uh, honestly more of a Greystrokes brush in this particular villain's origin story, if that's what they're doing, which I like. Um, I like the nuance Uh, by the end of the season. It was funny is because I was always treating Mariah as a character that had that same kind of well. I can see where she's coming from. I can see that she has some noble goals and her means are pretty questionable. Um, but again, and I keep coming back to the, to the, to the restaurant, but that was just, that was a huge turn in her character for me. Um, and it went from me going, Oh, she's very similar to Kingpin in that. I don't agree with her methods, but, uh, some of what she's trying to do, like some of the, the goals, the abstract goals, not the, you know, not the the gentrification that that Kingpin was trying to do, but the abstract idea of of making Hell's Kitchen better, or Mariah's goal of of trying to to help Harlem, um, was good. Yeah. But, but then that happened, and I could no longer side with her. Right, I could no longer give her that that angle, which is funny because I really probably should feel the same way about Kingpin, and I don't, and I don't know why. <laughs> That's uh, fair. I don't know what that says about me as a person. I hope nothing bad. Uh, I maybe I just think that a quick death is better than a than burning somebody to death. Although she does shoot him in the head. I uh, yeah, I was gonna but, say on the one hand, I I. I don't remember that being a very quick death, the car door capitation. <laughs> um, but also I think – and to me it's an interesting moment because I think to some extent, you know, one of the people who are freaked out by, Mar- by Mariah being willing to do this mm-hmm. is Mariah. 
And as you said, you know, she, yeah. she has that moment where she, she burns him. She wants him to suffer. And then she just says, just die already and shoots him herself. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't think she's having a moment of mercy and wanting to help him as much as she's having a moment of she just can't stomach watching this man burn to death, even though mm-hmm. she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and some would say that's a moment of weakness from her. Some would say that's a moment of she still has more of her humanity than others do. Um, but either way, I think it's a very telling moment for her character. Yeah. Um, now, we haven't talked – so we could probably spend an entire uh, podcast actually just dissecting the character of Mariah Dillard. Uh, we haven't mm-hmm. talked much about uh, Bushmaster. We've we've mentioned a little bit about his particular revenge arc and, and how he goes about executing it. But I wanted to know what, what you thought about uh, his quest, specifically the things that he – that he does uh, to himself and to others in order to try to exact this revenge. I really liked it. Um, and again, this is um, one of the things I liked most. And again, I don't want to dive too into it, but I just want to make note of it is for me growing up in New York city, I was very well aware that there were, you know, the, the black population of New York city is by no means homogenous. And there's, there's many different divisions. And one of them is between um, uh, uh, um, what, 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 my, what you might call African-American or, or, or black, but with Caribbean-American. And that the Caribbean-American populations I knew were, were very uh, adamant about not being thought of in, in the same regard. Um, and again, I'm making gross generalizations here. This is just my, my anecdotal experience. But, but the point being that I know that, that I, was really, I was really interested in seeing that be explored um, and seeing the, the tensions in those communities be, be touched on and explored. Um, and I thought they, they, for the most part, did a very good job of doing that. I have uh, read a lot of commentary that um, uh, um, Bushmaster's accent was actually quite bad and was not very representative of what a Jamaican accent should have sounded like. Um, it's not something I can comment on, but I certainly trust that perspective. But I, but I did enjoy that that part of the character. Um, and I thought overall, he wa- it, it's funny because on the surface – I'm so mad at your family that I'm going to poison myself with something that's going to destroy me long term, but give me super strength now to fight you. Feels like almost a bad cliche. And yet I thought this story carried it off really well. They made him a incredibly believable character. They made me feel like this was a person who was brutal and sociopathic very much because of his circumstances and that that doesn't excuse him, but it, it, it makes you sympathetic for how he became who he was in a way that I found really powerful and relatable. Um, and, and then I, in some ways I feel like, especially because we got so much of Luke and his father this season, I felt like to some extent they were also saying like Bushmaster is what Luke could have become if he didn't have, you know, granted Luke had such a troubled family life for himself, but you know, Luke gains his powers as an adult after so much else has formed him as who he was. Um, Bushmaster didn't. Bushmaster, you know, had, had first had this um, um, the, the his life saved by by the, the the mystical chemical or whatever it is um, that saves him. That happens to him when he's very young, and that he his pay he loses his parents when he's very young. This idea of revenge gets started when he's very young. Um, this is all a way of saying I I, I really like the character because it. It felt like a cliche, but it didn't become that. It became so much richer than that. Yeah, and I, I really, I want to say so. So I agree. Uh, Bushmaster was 
so I, I came into Luke Cage season two, uh, and when I started watching, I was like, okay, great. This is going to be the season where I get Mariah as a major villain. And Bushmaster came on the scene, and it was like a couple of episodes in, and I was all like, oh, so we have two really interesting characters that are antagonists to Luke Cage. Um, and in particular, I feel like what's interesting is because Bushmaster's uh, quest for revenge is against Mariah, who, who is obviously set up as another villain for the season. But I find his most interesting interactions are with Luke. Uh, in in particular, like when the two conflict, they obviously both don't think Mariah should have the power that she has. Uh, mm -hmm. They have different ways of going about it, and there's like there's even a moment where they team up, right? Um, for for a brief period of time. Yeah, and it's it's because and then they. You know, they, they so they have some some shared ideology and some shared values, and they're able to recognize that. Uh, I just I, I thought that that entire storyline was very powerful, um, and for Bushmaster's perspective, very tragic, uh, because I do think that he's very much a product of the circumstances around his early childhood, um, and like I, you know, it, it's hard to say that. I, he's entirely to blame for his sort of uh, singular direction, given that uh, what else did he have after that is his parents were taken away from him. Uh, they tried to take his life away, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And he survived it. And like then I think his quest for revenge against Mariah gives him purpose that he doesn't have otherwise. Yeah. No, and I think that's true. And I think that that's... Um... You know, and, and and to some extent, that's maybe the biggest contrast between him and Luke Cage is that he is primarily fighting against something. He is fighting against the, um, you know, the Dillards, the Stokeses, um, whereas Luke Cage is fighting for something. Luke wants to defend and protect Harlem. Um, and, and that's actually probably a good moment to transition. We could talk again. Any of these topics could be a full episode. But in many ways, I think the the most certainly I think the most debated and the most, not the most interesting, but certainly one of the most interesting and, and, and one of the most sort of raising questions, uh, plot arcs is Luke's himself um, and where he ends up. And, and, and so let's discuss King Luke um, and, and just start by, um, you know, when we first meet Luke, the thing he's really dealing with is anger um, and his kind of almost inability to control his anger. What, what was your take on that, especially in, in how it played out with Claire? Hmm. So, um, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, the, especially the scene, uh, in Claire's apartment, uh, where Luke Cage punches a wall, um, that was a very emotional scene for me. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've been in that room, um, yeah. if, as it were. And so for me, uh, seeing the, Seeing the emotion on Claire's face in that scene, seeing that Luke was driven to a point that he felt that he had to do that to control the conversation was just so, like, I felt like a hero that I had come to respect and admire had fallen just immediately in that moment. Uh, it, I mean, it did show, it did show me that, uh, you know, this is the level of anger management problem that Luke is dealing with right now, but it already reached an untenable level, right? Right. And I mean, I, I like that the show names it. I like that the show, uh, highlights that, gives us that scene and then gives us the fallout. 
Um, I kind of wish they had done a little bit more to to have him work his own stuff out. Uh, we had the the episode where Danny Rand came on, um, which is again very odd for me to be saying this, but like it was really really good, Danny Rand. I um, know, right? That was yeah. so weird. No, it was great because he was all like, "No, you need to find your center. You're you know being you're going around being an angry jerk, and you'd be better if you weren't." Um, and like he wasn't obnoxious somehow, and <laughs> like I was so yeah. So but but I wanted a little bit more of that only because uh, I feel like the as much as it was dealt with, I don't feel like the fact that it was a huge problem was dealt with enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel like uh, there should have been more <sighs> winnowing is the wrong term. I, I feel like Luke should have, should have struggled a lot more um, in, and, and I, at one point, you know, gotten really sad about how, how much he had lost control uh, things like that. I would have wanted to see that particular struggle. Now, that being said, he's given, he's presented a a character in Bushmaster who is also sort of ruled by anger, but it's this sort of directed, focused anger now, right? right. And so it's funny because it's he's as you mentioned earlier, there's there's almost a mirror uh, being held up between the two of them. Um, which obviously is intentional. The, the people who wrote the show know what they're doing. Um, but it's, it's funny to me that it takes Luke a very long time to realize sort of there, but the grace of, of whomever go I when dealing with, with Bushmaster. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point, especially in terms of, you know, to me, I always think like, you know, just giving in to anger, like for me, this all comes back to Star Wars, you know, and all the stuff about like giving in to anger and letting anger rule you as the path to the dark side. I mean, that, that's been my, uh, I, I would say that's been my defining idea for such a long time, but certainly in more recent years, I've become a lot more comfortable with the idea of anger as a motivating force. Um, but, but when it's controlled and when you're aware of it, and in that regard, almost on this one issue, not on most of them, but on this one issue, I think I, I more think Bushmaster has the right idea because Bushmaster acknowledges his anger and is willing to live into it, whereas Luke Cage is trying so hard to suppress his anger that it winds up coming out in ways he can't control, like when he's just so frustrated and, as you said, expresses it with Claire. Um, and I I, I, I think the show actually I, – I would disagree a bit. I think the show did in subtle ways, but I think the show did you know, show how frustrated he was and how sad he was about how that had all happened and that a lot of his – desperately really trying to find a way to solve the the Mariah issue and the saving Harlem issue had a lot more to do with him feeling like he had failed in other areas. Um, but, but I think you're right that the way that they play, you know, Luke against Bushmaster and that is, is really powerful. And, and I do like, it, it does uh, sort of fit with Luke's arc in the season as he's, you mentioned earlier, uh, which is a great point. And I wanted to bring it up again because it's, it's really the big question for Luke. He starts the season sort of as, you know, he's the hero of Harlem and you pe- people are throwing that around, you know, that, that uh, title around. And there's this app that you can follow him around with. And he like, uh, somebody catches him, you know, uh, doing his lay, laying down his unique brand of justice. And he says some stuff and dabs like he's trying to yeah. get into this sort of <laughs> hero persona. Um, and like he he 
kind you can tell he hates how fake some of it is that yeah. like he's doing it to to like the the public persona thing and and what it takes to be uh a hero and and a a figure that people look up to and respect involves sometimes sort of being dishonest which i don't think he likes yeah um and as the as the season progresses uh his a lot of his anger a lot of his frustration is that he's not able to deal with uh the problems in harlem the social problems in harlem uh the with uh as a hero right he can't do it just by going and and knocking heads or trying to encourage people to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing right yeah it's not enough um he needs another way uh the way that he finds uh god i really want there to be a luke cage season three um i i have thoughts on that which we'll get to but i i definitely hear you on that um and and i think you're right i think you know, to me, so much of Luke's arc this season is about him trying to have control and him being frustrated when he can't. You know, he can't control what's happening with his image and how people see him, even though he tries. He can't control how other people think of him. He can't control what's happening, um, you know, what the police are going to do or what the politicians or the courts are going to do. Uh, he can't control other people in Harlem. And, and on some level, he can't control himself. Mm-hmm. And so what, um, you know, I think we, we, we've kind of hinted at it, but, but to me, the, the granddaddy question of this is uh, what Luke Cage decides to do at the end. And I, I think we've been assuming this whole time that most of our listeners have, have watched all of Luke Cage season two. Uh, I'm going to make sure we didn't, uh, th- there will be a spoiler warning uh, uh, um, at the start of this to make sure people know, you know, <laughs> you, you probably want to watch Luke, Luke Cage season two. But, but just in case anyone who hasn't um, seen it and is listening to this or who just doesn't remember it well because it's been a couple months, um, can you briefly summarize sort of what's the what's the big decision he makes at the end of, of, of season two of, of Luke Cage? Yeah, it's funny because uh, what ends up happening <clears throat> is Luke is effectively offered Harlem's Paradise, right? Uh, yeah. And like if you, if you don't know the storyline, the significance of that is that this is a place that has been run by – the major organized criminal element in Harlem for a long time now, right? Uh, Cottonmouth had it when Luke came to Harlem, um, and then it was uh, Mariah who who was controlling Harlem's Paradise, and for a time, Bushmaster in the season controls it. <clears throat> and it's sort of this, this uh, position of power, but it's the kind of power that isn't you know, it isn't our hero power. This isn't like his fortress of solitude. This right. is a place where the under the underworld comes to do business, right? And rather than, uh, I think Luke Cage from season one would have flat out rejected the offer, been all like, "I'm above that. That's not me." Right. Uh, Luke Cage in this season goes, "You know what? No, my way isn't working. I'm going yeah. to take this," and he becomes the the owner and lord of harlem's paradise and and to me in some ways like I mean, he does that and even before that when he basically you know he takes mariah Dill- mariah um stokes or dillard have you describe her he takes mariah's comment of you know harlem doesn't need a hero it needs a king and he becomes that mm-hmm. um you know i think one of the most powerful scenes to me are first of all we learn that sort of without mariah the, the idea is that Mariah had sort of built this wall around Harlem and that with her in jail, 
there's now all of this, you know, crime that's happening again. And that someone needs to step up and, and fill that vacuum. And, you know, we see at the very end of the, not even the, the, the second to last episode in the last episode, him going to the other criminal bosses in town and sort of letting them know he is now going to take over. Um, and 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 I I'm sure you caught this. I don't know how, if all of our listeners did. To me, one of the, the best scenes is there's a moment in Harlem's Paradise towards the very end where Misty is sort of watching him as the people who are like serving him in in this role as the the, the, the head of Harlem's Paradise and the head of Harlem are are sort of paying tribute to him. And the door slowly closes on her watching. And and have you seen the first Godfather movie? Mm-mm. Okay. That is very distinctly a ret- that that exact scene happens in the Godfather movie, and it's the moment when Michael Corleone's wife realizes that he is becoming the crime boss, um, and that she will like that he's sort of choosing that life. Um, and to me, that moment was incredible. I thought it was brilliant filmmaking or TV making, and it was a very intentional way of him showing that he's becoming this. Because in the Godfather, that that's one of the primary ideas of that story is that you have these neighborhoods where the police aren't doing their job and so people like the you know uh, the Italian mafia have to kind of become the rulers of the neighborhood and that they do a lot of crime that they profit and they're very corrupt but they also keep their neighborhood safe when the police mm-hmm. won't do the job and i think the story here that they're trying to tell is can luke do the i'm going to protect the neighborhood that the cops aren't serving without becoming corrupted and without becoming just one more criminal. Uh, technically I don't know speaking, if he can. He's, yeah, technically speaking, he already is a criminal, right? Um, well, sure, but... In, insofar as he's taken... He's definitely guilty of assault and battery on many, many, many counts. But, but, but more what I meant was... I mean, obviously there's that, but what I meant was is that the story that I think happens so often and certainly happened with Mariah is that in claiming all the power to protect the neighborhood, you wind up having the power to enrich yourself. And then over time, your desire to enrich yourself and to protect yourself becomes more and more of your motivation instead of just helping others. Yeah, um, po- power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? That yeah. that that whole adage, which is interesting because we, we leave Luke in that moment where he's sort of established his power base, right? Um, and it already, like, he looks different, right? He's yeah. holding himself different. And so I think the, the season ends with sort of a cliffhanger in a way, in that it, the question is open. And in particularly, I'm, I'm thinking the question is open because of how, in the, uh, in the least ethical decision Luke Cage has ever made, how he dealt with Mariah's death, uh, mm. or rather Mariah's final moments. Um, so in that... I mean, I feel like that's, you know, his first slip in a way from where he was before, from the uh, I'm I am the hero with the higher ideal and I'm always going to do the right thing to sort of again, like sort of that that Tilda, I the the, the thing that I ascribe to Tilda's uh, thinking earlier about, well, because because he lets Mariah die uh, in his arms, mm-hmm. he could have called for help. He chose not to. Um like and it was a conscious choice. Pretty sure he names it in that scene, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he he does. I, I I think the idea is also supposed to be that she's probably beyond saving, but he certainly 
you know, she had manipulated him, I, I, I think, a number of times until then, she had kind of taken advantage of that and manipulated him into helping her. And I, 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 I guess I, I, I saw that as him breaking with that. But you're right, it is a little ethically questionable, because if he could have saved her, then, then maybe what does that say that he doesn't? Well, and I mean, if you want to, if you look at the interactions between Mariah and Luke throughout the season, she's been goading him slash training him into this role. Yeah. Uh, if you want to look at it. So like, in a way, it was sort of the student becomes the, the master moment, uh, which is really horrifying given uh how far down the uh the hole we saw mariah go um to to think of of a character like luke going from somebody who was you know a well-meaning person trying to do the right thing into becoming like uh mariah or like mabel before her right but it did really seem to me like uh this is kind of mariah what mariah wanted and so Mm -hmm. in a way even though she dies I feel like she won. I I think on some level that's true. I think certainly, you know, I think, especially her dying at the hands of Tilda, I think her own daughter, I think sort of erases any, any joy she might have in that moment. Um, but, but I do think that that's, you know, cause I think the, the question we're sort of hinting at, but haven't quite addressed straight on is, is Luke right to make this decision? And, I'm honestly not sure he is, and I kind of think he might be, but certainly the fact that it's what Mariah is pushing him into makes it by itself, uh, I'll, uh, that makes me even more like, uh, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. I feel like, it's it's funny, it's a similar decision to what, um, I, so Batman Begins, I'm going to talk about Batman Begins, uh, end of Batman Begins uh, with Ra's al Ghul is exactly the same thing, right, where uh, basically all the hero has to do is not act and the the villain dies. Right. Right. And the question is, is it right for, is, is it ethically correct for a hero to do that? Or does that, does that sort of revoke their hero privileges? Can you no longer be somebody that we call a champion of, of justice and good and what is right? If you, through in through intentional inaction allow somebody to to perish that you could have probably potentially could have saved like maybe she was beyond saving i feel like that was very much left ambiguous um and i feel like luke didn't know either way and didn't care i think i guess i have a couple of thoughts here first of all i think the scene with bat in batman begins bothers me much more because for Batman, it is much more established as a just fundamental character trait that he saves people. That he not only doesn't kill people, but that, you know, he, he pulls Joker back from the edge of the cliff, which even I thought in, in The Dark Knight, they got that right at least. Uh, I, 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 that sounds like I didn't like Dark Knight. I think Dark Knight was fantastic. But I'm saying, like, there I feel like they corrected it even when Batman Begins, because in Batman Begins, that moment just feels not only like it's ethically wrong for for, for Batman to do, but I just didn't believe it. I don't believe Batman would do that. Um, with Luke, um, it's interesting. I, I've now watched that scene twice. I I didn't get the sense that he was letting her die because I got the sense that he was just more kind of like – so I guess I didn't think about it in those terms as much as you have. Um, but you're right. In those terms, 
it, that is a that's a choice that he makes, and and that's probably an important part of him maybe saying he's not going to be a hero anymore. The, the, this idea of not being a hero but being a king. Um, honestly, I yeah, it's it, it's a hard one, and I it troubles me that Luke makes these choices, and I don't agree with him making those choices. But I think they're very believable, and I understand why the character is making those choices. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, I think, as well, is uh, Luke ends up making peace with his father uh, this season, which is some very, very touching scenes, uh, actually, in my opinion, were between Luke and Luke's dad, uh, whose name escapes me. Um, it's Lucas. His last name is Lucas. Yep. Because uh, it's Carl Lucas and Reverend, whatever. Uh, yeah. I- I'll look it up and, and try <laughs> it myself later. Uh, but the 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 main thing is James. Must be James. James. That's it. Yep. Yep. Um. So the the main thing is that all of uh james's counsel all of the reverend's counsel to luke is about the righteous path right and talking about uh what's right for luke to do and like how he can make those decisions and and you know what sort of what direction he should take his life in um and sort of you're you're the master of your own destiny and things like that and um luke's father like so they make amends they, they sort of patch up and then uh luke's father leaves and ultimately what luke decides to do is to sort of walk a different path entirely right Mm -hmm. and i feel like it that again that that finale scene uh where he's in the suit and he's talking you know he's getting people whispering in his ear and then closing a door that that whole setup i didn't i wasn't aware of the significance to uh other theatrical properties uh from from earlier in uh in our history but that scene really bothered me because it really felt like what the what the story was trying to tell me was that he luke has made the decision to embrace this role this position of power and sort of fix the the underworld like do the good that he can um from within that system uh which I really wish you had seen you have seen Angel because I would mm. love to talk about Angel season five in the context <laughs> of this, and I feel like I can't because you're missing you're missing way too much of the context. It would just be me talking uh, for well, the benefit and, of some and, of the people listening. And I get that because frankly, a lot of where I think they're going to go with the Luke Cage story, I can't talk about it because I know you haven't seen the last Iron Fist season yet. Um, which I'm amazed to say is really good. Um, which I'm a really couple really... episodes in, and I agree. Okay, uh, I'm cool. shocked, but yeah, uh, well, some of the stuff they're doing with Joy, like it, there's going to be a lot to talk about yeah. there too. And, and I'll use this as a moment to just do a quick aside because I know one of the elephants in the room is we've talked about what what happens next with Luke Cage. Luke Cage, the show, has been canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is going to happen, and I hope is going to happen, and I'm, I'm going to try and make sure I say this without spoiling anything, but this is a little bit like getting into what happens in, in Iron Fist. I think that we're not going to have Iron Fist or Luke Cage as shows anymore, but instead we're going to have Heroes for Hire and Daughters of the Dragon, mm-hmm. um, which which to me would be amazing as well. But, but part of what I hope for that is because, as you said, 
Danny and Luke actually had a really great interaction. And and I think when I look at sort of the like the cliff that Luke has walked himself out onto, I think what pulls him back is Danny. Mm-hmm. Um because I do think that Danny could be like that that what I would hope for is something where and, and maybe even not even Danny, but we get more to the defenders that, that you know, it, it's sort of all of like, I mean, gosh, how great would a new season of Defenders be where it starts out that Luke Cage is the big bad? Oh, um, man, I would love that. And and I don't think it's going to happen, but I would love it if some combination of Danny and, and Daredevil and Jessica and all of them are to some extent, like, help Luke see why what he's doing is a mistake. Um, or at least why it's not going to work. Because again, I... I don't think he can be a hero and do this, and I want him to be a hero. But on some level, maybe Harlem does need a king more than needs a hero. I'm, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sold on that. That's a very pragmatic thing, and that's a very like least of all possible evils thing. But, but maybe that is what what's needed. I'm, I'm still not quite there on. Quite I, sure I would on that be, one, yeah. I would be even more into a defender season where we start off with Luke as the as the central antagonist. And then about halfway through the season when they, they have a major confrontation and there's this reveal that what you know, Luke's done a lot of very questionable things and it's because of this other major problem, there's no other way to deal with it. And then they have to start helping him. Yeah. <laughs> Would be, but, you know, again, I'm not a writer. They, you know, yeah. the, the team of writers they have at the doing the Marvel Netflix shows are definitely, uh, definitely way competent and they'll produce something <laughs> that I enjoy. Almost certainly, but eh, you know they, they haven't done it all the time. And if it's still them, I mean, there's a slight chance that we just get Disney instead of Netflix going forward. But that's true. Well, Disney is doing well, their own streaming service that is an even larger elephant in the room, and I will not comment on it <laughs> beyond um, naming it. What, what do you think? Of, let's just get in a one last thing with Luke, and then and then move on to one or two more things because we're already at the hour point. Um, what do you think of his decision to to turn Claire away? to not even uh, engage with Claire when Claire comes to the club to see him. So I'm very torn on this one because I do feel as though he's put himself into a position where, but first of all, I feel like he has not resolved his anger issues. And I think he knows that. And I think that he doesn't like, I think he correctly doesn't trust himself uh, yet to be, um, to be around people he cares that deeply about uh, for fear of like him losing control again or whatever. I think that might be part of it. But I also really, really, really hate the trope of, oh, I'm going to protect you from me by, by pushing you away and denying you the ability to like, whatever. Mm. So I, I, I think like there's a narrative where you could frame it to be him trying to keep her out of the the muck that he's now had to dip his his hands into uh trying to like not trying to distance himself from her so that she's not connected to some of the shady stuff he's now going to have to be but there's also that like taking claire's decision about whether or not she wants to be a part of his world in that uh, even with that is something that i don't really like i do feel like go ahead No, go on. Uh, I I do feel like that is a terrible cliche and one I want nothing to do with. But I I actually I and I I like this. And again, it's such a small scene, so maybe I'm I'm headcanoning. But I thought they were intentionally not leaning into that because I thought 
the reading that I had from it was not them saying he's trying to protect her, but he's trying to say, he's trying to protect himself. Uh, and specifically, what I mean by that is that he kind of is aware that he is intentionally walking away from the side of him that Claire more than anyone saw. You know, mm. Claire brought out the hero in him. Claire wanted him to be this incredible hero. And I think it's kind of that he knows that he is – what I took it as is that on some level he is conflicted about what he's doing and he's trying very hard to silence the part of his own brain that's saying, Luke, you're supposed to be a hero. You're not supposed to be a king. And that he knows that if he is – if Claren is in, is in his life, she's going to be that same voice and he just can't take that. Um and again, that might be a whole bunch of headcanon, but certainly that's where I went with it. That it... I, I like that take because if you if you suddenly change it to be Luke protecting his own interest, mm-hmm. um, now I like the I like that narrative better. Yeah, because then it's him making choices for himself rather than him making choices for another person, mm-hmm. right? That that they don't have any agency or control over, um. And so, and I know ultimately, uh, at least in the comic series, uh, those two do not end up together uh, in in any kind of long term situation. Uh-huh. Um, I I'm wondering if they're going to re-explore the Luke Jessica Jones romance because uh, I think that that could have legs again. But um, but I, I feel like maybe it might just be that the writers want to put some distance there to make room. Um, but I hope that Claire's character doesn't go away as a result mm-hmm. of this, because if she thinks, if she thinks, uh, Matt Murdock is dead, right. And Luke doesn't want her around anymore. Uh, she's probably still going to be in the city doing what she does, but, yeah, um, a lot and of I... her connections other than through Colleen and, uh, Danny are gone. I, I, I can't comment on this because I have seen the next two shows and so I know what her role <laughs> okay, is or is okay, not in those okay, shows. Okay. Um but I'll just say yeah, I think I think you're right. That that brings up some interesting stuff. Um we wanna um uh uh not go too long and our, our next area was gonna be the Stokes, but I feel like we've kind of uh touched on most of that. Um so let's go ahead to what was gonna be our last question, which is I think a relationship that is not explored much, but what is explored is I think really fascinating and I wish we'd kinda of gotten more of which is a Shades-Comanche relationship, um, mm-hmm. which to me is powerful in a lot of ways. I mean, A, just because it brings up um, the idea of um, two men uh, loving each other in, in, a, <clears throat> in a situation that, that, that is almost never you know, thought, thought to be explored. Um, and it gets into the idea of sort of the a, that, of a prison sexual relationship. You know, is that supposed to be something that just is in prison or that translates into something more back in the, uh, the out of prison world. And that raises so many questions. Um, and then also of course, the way that it ends with, um, uh, shades realizing that, that Comanche who is not, not only his lover, but it was his, you know, best friend from, from childhood, um, that Comanche is, is, uh, is now working with the cops, um, and shades killing him. Um, what, what was your take on that storyline? Cause certainly that was a, a very powerful one. So there's a scene. So for a while, I I understood their connection to just be that you know they've been friends since childhood. They've come up together, and there's this this very strong connection between them. And there's a scene in the uh, in Pops in the barber shop 
where Shades and Comanche are sitting back to back waiting for, I think, waiting for Luke Cage to, to get back there to ambush him. Uh, so they're, they're doing a little camp out. And there's this exchange between the two of them that, for me, was heartbreaking. Because uh, you can clearly tell from that scene, I feel, that Comanche possesses very strong romantic feelings still for Shades and doesn't feel like he can express them. Yeah. And Shades is trying to, like, you know, he cares very deeply about Comanche. He's like, again, they've had a very close friendship their whole life. And I feel like Shades doesn't quite feel completely the same way, but also doesn't want to hurt his friend. And it just, knowing later on what is likely to happen, because we know at that point already that Comanche's the snitch, if I'm not mistaken. I think we Um, do, yeah. Yeah, so knowing the way that is likely to shake out is just like that. That scene for me set up the the tragedy of these two's relationship, and I feel like um, some of it is just the that uh, they were victims in many ways of of societal pressures. Because I'm not even sure if Shades is, uh, I'm I'm not sure what to think about Shades' character. I'm never sure when he's genuine and when he isn't, except. His interactions with with Comanche, I felt like were always genuine. Yeah. Um, and that's really when he let his guard down and actually expressed what he was really feeling. Um, which is funny because he's in a romantic relationship with Mariah for a significant period in the beginning of the season, through the middle, uh, and toward the end, honestly. Uh, and I don't feel that same genuineness in his interactions with her until he starts talking with her about burning a Nazi. Yeah. Right. Well, then and, and th- okay. we get the genuine shades. And well, and I, I actually even say, and I, and granted, I started by talking about him by shade about uh, shades, but but I would say that I think um. So you sort of this, this is not your wording; it's mine. But I would even say that I think what the conflict is there all along is shades is in love with Mariah. Um, Herman is in love with Comanche. And that so much of his plot line is about, you know, season one, he is just full on shades. Mm-hmm. And season two, com, um, you know, Herman is starting to reemerge. Re- re- and, and, and that Herman is much more tied to, to Comanche and not to, to Mariah. And that, you know, sort of some of his final conflicts with Mariah, he, he outright names that. And he says, you know, you never really understood me the way he did. And you don't, you don't understand who I am and, and why this, what you're doing bothers me so much. Um, and, and 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 to me, it's very striking, especially in there's a scene towards the very end where, um, you know, Shades is confessing to um, all the mm. crimes that he did. And it now seems like he is 100 percent back to being Shades because he is joking. He's, you know, demonstrating no remorse at all. He's kind of enjoying the fact that he is getting to Misty Knight and like needling her with how he killed the witness and, and saying these things that upset them. And the first time I saw that scene, I thought this doesn't feel right. What happened to how much shades had changed. The second time I watched it, what I was seeing was Herman desperately trying to put on the facade of shades to stop feeling the guilt and sadness that he feels about Comanche's death and all the things that he's been involved with, with Mariah and all of that. And, and to me, that just made it so much more heartbreaking to sort of see him, you know, recognizing this facade that he's been putting on and now trying to put it back on because he just can't accept all the things that have happened. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see that facade break when Comanche's mother walks into the interrogation room after he's talked about, after he's confessed to murdering Comanche. Yeah. Right? And just seeing him go from that, you know, you know, cracking wise and being, you know, kind of a jerk and, and talking through all of these horrible things that he's done as if they were, you know, just like he'd put on a pair of socks and some shoes for the day. And then she comes in and it's just this break in his character. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that uh, that it was a facade he was putting on to try to sort of uh, as a defense mechanism to try to pr- protect himself from what what's happening and what has become of his life. And then when he's confronted by Comanche's mother, he's confronted again by the horrific reality of what he's actually done. And he can't take it because mm-hmm. he killed his best friend. Yeah. And he his killed best his best friend, friend his... for Mariah, who then went off the deep end and wasn't his way out of the life anymore the way he thought she was going to be. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's very true. His best friend, and I, I think important to name his lover, because I mm-hmm. think... I, I think that Comanche is clear that he still has romantic. Comanche is clear that he is comfortable still having romantic feelings for Herman and wanting to act on them. I I don't think that the idea is that Shades doesn't have those feelings. I think that Shades is conflicted and doesn't know if he has those feelings, and that that mm. just it again just adds one one more level of complexity and, and and beauty I think to the story in a real sad way. It's it's tragic and it's. <sighs> You know, it's another piece of media where we, we have this thing happening, but I feel like because they're not minor characters, we we weren't introduced to these people, like, just this season, um, mm-hmm. it gets a semi-pass, but I can't say for sure if it gets a, a pass from that trope. Um, that's not for me to name, right? But it's mm-hmm. still a case where we, you know, can we, can we have more happy homosexual relationships in our media, please? I would be that- okay with that. That would be a very nice thing. I, I think we're getting it in some other places uh, in the MCU a little bit, but but nowhere near enough. And 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 yeah, it's the kind of thing where I feel like I I I didn't feel like that trope too much, but certainly I I, I am not someone who's sensitive to it. So I, I my my thinking it isn't necessarily a problem is is a pretty worthless statement. Um, and that certainly I think it would it would feel a lot better if we were getting getting more of the opposite of more, you know, gay couples that uh, are bi or are queer and, and any of that that did have happy endings. Um, the, the, to the extent that, I mean, in the Netflix world, every, no one has a happy ending. But, um, <laughs> right, you know, right. This it, is grim, dark superhero stories. Right, yeah, because certainly it, it, it did have some of that feel of, you know, that their, 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 their gay relationship with each other was their downfall. And, um, and it was their forbidden love, quote-unquote, which is, ugh. Yeah. So that that part of it, I I didn't like, and especially when Mariah's needling shades about it, uh, uh-huh. and and throwing out such language as "gay for the stay," um, right. and just yeah, God, that was horrid. Um, I, and I feel like intentionally so. I feel like we were not supposed to that we weren't supposed to be laughing it up with Mariah in that moment. We were supposed to be like, oh, she's crossing another line, uh, right? Because this season really was a very now I'm talking about Mariah again, but, but she was like the most fascinating villain in the entire season. Uh, so yeah, but yeah, she the slow descent uh, for her over time from the the beginning of it, where she's you know 
She's got a, a seemingly healthy, stable relationship. She's trying to cut her criminal ties and and go legitimate and just focus on her foundation and her political career and, and doing good for Harlem. And then at the end of the season, she's killed a bunch of people and and dies herself. Yeah, no, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that kind of gives us a good place to, to wrap up. But is there any more that you wanted to get into or any other points that we didn't get a chance to make? Uh, so, going back to uh, the episode where Danny, where where the Iron Fist shows up, um, there was something that Danny Rand commented on or, or said during his interactions with Luke when he's when, when they're doing that thing where our heroes spar with each other so one of them can teach uh, the other one some valuable philosophical lesson, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> which is you know it's not sexy sparring but it is a it is also kind of a trope but it's one that i kind of like uh because in this right. particular case uh there's something that danny sends about uh about finding your center and being at peace and that being so important to to having clarity that i feel like is a lesson that again from danny Rand, a character that we have uh been rolling our eyes at and and, and frustrated <laughs> with up until this point Here's something that he said that I was like, man, that's good. Yeah. I dig that, and maybe it's because I've, I've, um, you know, I've studied a lot of of disciplines that have that that preach that kind of of mentality. But for me, especially where Luke was, I felt like that's exactly what he needed to be doing. Um, and I just, I personally thought that that uh, that whole exchange, the dialogue between the two of them, and then Danny trying to mentor luke on on anger problems when we know danny especially in season one definitely had them himself right Right. um and i so i've just started watching i'm like two or three episodes into season two of iron fist he still seems to have some anger issues and i'm wondering if they like these seasons are contemporaneous with each other we'll talk about it later but Mm -hmm. like i don't buy that mentor character out of what I'm seeing in these first couple of episodes of Iron Fist, even though this Danny Rand is better um, and has clearly changed in how he wants to approach situations. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's fair. And I, I, again, I don't want to get too much into it because I've seen things that you haven't yet. Um, but, but I would just say, I, I, I think you're right that I think to some extent, I feel like that's, it's a little bit hypocritical of Danny because he's still dealing with it, but it also feels Danny feels to me very much like the kind of character who would be good at, you know, you know, the kind of like, you know, doctor, take your own medicine idea mm. of like, he's very good at giving people advice that he doesn't follow. Yeah. Um, I will say that I, I do think, as you said, you know, he, he is becoming a better character in Iron Fist season two. I will also say that I, I think Iron Fist season two is a very good episode, a very good season of television. I think he's probably the weakest character in the show still. Um, sure, but that part of what makes the show so good is how much it leans into some of the other characters. Um, and yeah, I think I don't really have anything else to to add. Um, I mean, there's so much more in some of these other uh, topics we could go into. Um, I know we, we we just briefly touched on the the issue of Luke's father. Um, but I think we, which who I never even thought of it. But um, you, you use the phrase Luke's father, and I can't but but immediately think of Darth Vader. Um, which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, shouldn't have the claim on that for all characters named Luke. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a good stopping point, and certainly I would say to to all of our listeners, um, what what did you all think? What was what's your take on um on Luke? Uh, I know certainly there have been a lot of debate over um his final decision. Oh, actually, I, I will interrupt. There was there was one last point that I wanted to make 
that I'll admit, I thought it was so interesting and I wish we could explore it more because I have theories on what it could mean, but I think there's so much about what it could mean that I don't even know. But is Luke replacing the picture of uh, Biggie, Biggie Smalls, uh, you know, King Biggie with um, uh, the picture of Muhammad Ali? Mm. Because to me, that's a it's, it's so much of, you know, Luke has always been very old school. You know, he doesn't like rap and hip hop as much. He I mean, he, he does somewhat, but he, he wants to sort of go back to the older generations. And Muhammad Ali certainly very much represents that. Muhammad Ali absolutely represents, you know, black pride and black power and black strength um, in ways that I feel are very tied to Luke Cage. Um, and I, 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 I feel like I don't know enough about Ali and how he's positioned to, to comment on sort of what Ali means in terms of Luke Cage taking on that kingship role. But, but I just thought it was such a significant thing. And I, and I hope that it's one that in whatever format we get back to, um, uh, Luke Cage, we certainly see commented on again. Yeah, I agree. I can't. So, I also cannot comment on it because yeah. I don't know <laughs> enough about the history. Yeah. So yeah. So I'd say that's uh, that's one more thing that if you want to talk to us about that, if you want to talk to us about any of this other stuff, um, you can tweet at us at superhero ethics. You can email us at superheroethics at gmail dot com. But the best way to find us is to join our our Facebook group. Um, It's still small. We really are trying to grow it and to have that be a place to continue these conversations. So if you've got thoughts on these, um, I'm going to post some questions. I've not been good about doing that, but I want to get better at it. Um, Post some questions for discussion. Chime in there. Tell us where where you agree. Tell us where you think we were totally wrong. Tell us something you – a perspective that that we don't have that that should be part of this conversation. Please add that in. Um, The other thing I would ask is um, if you like this podcast, you want more people to hear it, Please leave us a review, um, especially on iTunes. If you can leave us a review, um, I hope it's a five-star review, but you know, leave whatever review you, you feel comfortable. Um, the more of those reviews we get, it, it pushes up us up higher on the search engine for iTunes and just gives more people a chance to hear us and, and to, to get to part of this conversation. So um, thank, thank you guys all for listening. Jacob, on behalf of uh, myself and you, thank, thank, thanks, everyone. Um, and again, let me just close with um, a huge thank you to Stan Lee. Um, your life has touched so many of us and, and your work is, um, the, the basis of so much of the work we do. So, um, uh, uh, we, we, we are sad at your passing and, and so grateful for all you did. And so to Stan Lee, thank you. Excelsior.